Good morning, everybody. Man, it has been a good morning. This is fantastic. It's good to be together. I would love to have you turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. Uh, Matthew 8, this is kind of where we are parked over the next couple of weeks, really through the summer, uh, Matthew chapters 8 and 9. And so we began looking at the first few verses of Matthew 8 last week. And so we're just going to continue looking at these, uh, these the wonderful stories of Jesus' healing presence. And so uh, we're going to be, gonna be uh, encountering the story between Jesus and a Roman centurion. Maybe you're familiar with it, though maybe for some of us this is the first time we've heard it. So let's just um, let's open ourselves up to hear from God's Word together this morning. It says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell one to go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, And it is done. Now when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus then said to the centurion, Go, let it be done for you just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Let's pray together. God, thank you for, uh, for these accounts that your followers, uh, they were inspired by the Spirit to write, to give us, um, that we look back on you, Jesus, as the the living presence of God, the Word of God made flesh, who came into this world to bring your kingdom, your rule, your reign, your healing presence to all of the places of brokenness. And so, God, we, uh, we worship you. We turn our hearts to you. We ask that your presence would encounter us today. We know that you, um, you are alive that you've promised that you're not far away from us, but you're here with us as your people gather for worship. You inhabit the praises of your people. God, that you come where you're wanted. And so we tell you, Lord, that you're wanted here. We want you to to speak to us. We want you to move. We want you to to just extend your hand, to to touch us in a place of need, to speak your words of life and and wholeness over us. And so, God... um, we, we trust that you will, um, will do what is in your heart to do today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Now, if, <clears throat> if you were to go back, you're getting a time machine. You ever watch those movies or TV shows with time machines? I don't know, like, what your favorite time machine TV show, like Bill and Ted's Ex- Excellent Adventures, or the, you know, Back to the Future, the DeLorean... 
uh, kind of thing. You know, so you get in your time machine, whatever it is, and you dial it to somewhere around 29 AD, 28, 29 AD, and you were going to go back, not just to that period of time, but you were going to go back to the region of Galilee. So this region around the, the Sea of Galilee, and you were to witness the ministry of Jesus. Like, that's, that's what you wanted to do. You were going to go, and you were going to be one of these followers of Jesus. I think the thing that, as a 21st century Christian, that might surprise us about the ministry of Jesus is what people were saying about him. Like, you're going to sit at dinner, and you're going to talk, and you're going to say, so tell me about this Jesus of Nazareth, right? And you know what they're going to tell you about? His miracles. They were going to tell you about the, the miracles that, that he did. And, of course, they're also going to tell you about his teaching. I mean, because Jesus was a, a teacher. And when he taught, he taught as one who had the very authority of God because he was God. He was a preacher. He was a rabbi. He was a reformer. He was all of those things. But he was also a miracle worker. And... And I think that was a thing that would have distinguished Jesus, and it was a thing that drew multitudes of people to him. It set him apart from all the other teachers, <clears throat> from all the other sages and spiritual leaders of his day. And Jesus didn't just work a few scattered miracles. Miracles were like, they were a major part of his ministry. <clears throat> um, and the most common miracle that Jesus that, that Jesus sort of did was a miracle of healing, wounded people, people who, who had wounds in all different kinds of ways. Some wounds were physical, some wounds were spiritual, some wounds were relational, and it was just like wherever Jesus went, healing happened. And so over the next couple of weeks, what we're doing is we're looking at Matthew chapters 8 and 9, and it's just 10 stories of, of healing, of healing of different uh, varieties of wounds, and I think they're so powerful. And as we read these stories like this one today, I hope it inspires faith in us. I hope uh, there's just kind of this renewed sense of like the amazement of who Jesus is and his power. Um, but one of the dangers of looking at healing stories, though, is we look for patterns in them. And you can read these 10 stories, right? And you can be like, okay, so like maybe this is the key, you know, to to healing, and you got to pray the right way, and you got to pray with, you know, the, using these words, and you got to like, you know, we love patterns, we love formulas. If you're standing at the checkout line at the grocery aisle, right, and you're, you're, you're there, you remember when somebody used to check your groceries for you, and you could just stand there and wait? Those were the days, right? Um, kids, uh, so some, they used to check your groceries for you at the grocery store, but uh, now you have to do it yourself. Uh, but if you're standing there checking your groceries and you were to look at the magazines that were displayed, right, on those racks as you're checking out, I, look at it and the, the next time you're in the grocery store. I guarantee you on the covers of those magazines, you will find all kinds of like five steps to whatever. Like three, here's the formula to do this. We love, as human beings, we love formulas. We love patterns. We're geared to like look for patterns and things. And so you can read these stories of Jesus and you're like, well, maybe like, if we want healing, it's like, well, we'll pray this way. We just have to have the right amount of faith, and we have to pray in the right way, and we have to have the right people around us, and, and in the right environments. We have to travel to these holy places, like all of that kind of stuff. And I, let me just tell you, as a pastor for almost 20 years, I have seen that kind of stuff just cause so much damage. I just, just, because we're just kind of on the search 
uh, for, for something. But Jesus, it, he, I think he intentionally did not heal people in the same way. It, because Jesus, he didn't perform like a ritual of healing or a rite of healing. Jesus was healing. Right? I mean, it was him. His presence, like it was wherever he went, he just brought the life of heaven and he brought restoration and he brought wholeness and it is beautiful and it is powerful. In fact, in Matthew 11, verse 35, Matthew sums up this whole like chunk of scripture and this ministry of Jesus. And here's what he says, this summary statement. He says, then Jesus went around to all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So he's declaring the kingdom, and then he's demonstrating the kingdom. I mean, it's just, it was who Jesus was, right? He is the life of heaven on earth. Now, here's the thing, though, is that every person that Jesus healed, every account of healing we're going to look at, including the one today, every person that experienced this healing touch of Jesus died at some point in their life, Right? I mean, does that make sense? Even, like, we're not looking at that story, but Lazarus was raised from the dead. He was dead for, you know, three days and was raised from the dead. And Lazarus, we don't know how long he lived, but he lived, you know, for a while, and then eventually he died again. And just like this centurion servant, he was, was healed, was restored. At that very moment that Jesus said the words, and we don't know how long this servant went on to live, but we know someday the servant died. Are you with me? All the healings Jesus performed were temporary. They were just like this little blip, this little moment in time. And when God brings healing, and, and Bob, thanks for just testifying to the healing of your, your heart rhythm. That's beautiful, right? Uh, all of the healings in this life are temporary. And that's because everything Jesus did was like a sign. It was like a sign. And what do signs do? Well, they point to something, Right? I mean, that's what a, the purpose of a sign isn't like, wow, look at that. That's a great sign. It points to something. And what did Jesus' healing and his ministry point to? What well, pointed, right, to the promise of God, that God is at work in the world, that God is coming into a broken world to heal and to redeem and to restore everything that is broken. That's, that's what Jesus' ministry was about. That, that God is at work in Christ, even today, healing, redeeming, restoring um, things in our world. Because the, and, and we've talked about this a number of times over the last few weeks, that God, this is God's vision is to, to bring ultimate healing and ultimate redemption, to do away with death and to do away with suffering, um, and to, to bring his new world, uh, which, we promise, which he promises to do, and by faith we believe. So... Like, part of my hope, as we look at a story like this today and over the next few weeks, is, is that, and it kind of like titling this series, Bringing Our Wounds to Jesus. Because I'm guessing we have some wounds. Like, just this morning, even, as we gather, like, I'm guessing, like, we, we have wounds in our lives. Because I do. And there are wounds in my life that I need to bring to Jesus. And, and maybe this morning your wounds are physical. Like you have some physical things, some suffering in some ways. And it is, it is good, so good to get old, right? As Jay said earlier this morning. And there's some pain that comes with it. And so maybe today you're feeling like maybe some real suffering in your body. You know? And, and to just what does it look like to bring that to Jesus? Maybe there are relationships in your life that are really strained. 
Or maybe they're broken. And there's loss and lament in that. And there's a wound in, in your soul, and Jesus is inviting you to bring it to him. Maybe there's somebody in your life who's like going down this path, and you know where this path leads, but they don't seem to be paying attention to it. And you know that this path leads to pain, and it's just like watching this person you love self-destruct. And it rips your heart out. And so your heart today, as you come, your heart is really worried and wounded. Maybe there's anxiety in your life that you just can't shake. Or there's a pattern of sin that you can't break. And no matter how hard you try, you just keep giving in to the same temptation and you feel defeated and you gather this morning you're like, I don't even know if I can sing these songs because I just feel unworthy. Well, you're in the right place. right? Because Jesus invites us, whatever the wound is that we feel this morning, that we bring it to him. Um, so, we trust him. He is healing. His presence is what makes us whole. So let's look at this, this story, this story of Jesus and this Roman centurion. So um, let's, just, let's just kind of unpack it a little bit. We'll just kind of walk through it, just verse, verse by verse here. So again, if you have a Bible, it's, it's really great to, to follow along that way so you can, you can kind of remember it. And you can take notes in your Bibles if you want to, too. So we'll just walk through it one, one verse at a time. So when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. What do you know about Roman centurions? Anything? Any obvious things? They were soldiers in the Roman military, right? They, they're powerful, right? A centurion gives the idea that they had say-so over probably about 100. They, lots of... Um, Depictions of this would say somewhere around 80 people, 80 to 100 people, but some centurions had more authority and were, were in charge of others. And so this, this guy, he's a part of the Roman military, and he's a soldier. Soldiers in the Roman military were required to serve for 20 years. For, they, they gave two decades of their life to uh, service of Rome. And then afterwards, they were usually rewarded a plot of ground in a conquered territory, a territory that the army had gone in, the military had gone in, and, and taken from the people who lived there. And then retired military leaders were given plots of ground so they could extend Roman rule and culture to those places. Um, how did the people in Jesus' day, you know, Jesus' uh, friends and family and the people around him, the Jewish people of his day, experienced Roman soldiers. Were, were they a welcome presence? It was like, oh, good, there's a Roman centurion in the house. Like, yeah, this is, I feel better already. No, they were not a welcome presence at all. Why not? I mean, they were hated. Roman soldiers were absolutely hated. Why? Was because their force was brutal. And, and authoritarian, like they, they were oppressive. And, and Rome was this, was this horribly oppressive uh, empire. Now, there was a phrase uh, in, in the, the Roman world called the Pax Romana. And uh, the Pax Romana just means Roman peace, the peace of Rome. And you, you think, well, that's good. Like, Rome is all about peace. Um, a little bit different kind of peace than we think about. The Pax Romana. Um, there is a place, and Carmen and I actually had the, the privilege, like, uh, it was probably 12 years ago, of traveling to Rome, and we got to visit this place, and I really wanted to visit it. It was called the Altar of Peace. And the, the Altar of Peace was dedicated in about 
somewhere about AD 9. So Jesus would have been a very young man when the altar of peace in Rome was dedicated. And the altar of peace was like, it was like a first century movie theater, right? You couldn't go to a drive-in movie, uh, but you could go to these big, like, um, these altars, and you could walk around them, and as you walked around uh, these, these fixtures, they, they told you a story. And the most prominent part of the story on the altar of peace, this is kind of one picture that, that you would see if you traveled there, is, the, is Roma. Now, Roma was not a tomato. It's a bad dad joke, right? Roma was the it was like the personification of Rome. It's like if there was a picture of Lady Liberty or Uncle Sam, you would know immediately what that means, right? This is like, it's like us. This is like America. And so Roma was, was the personification of Rome. And here at the altar of peace, Roma is sitting down. She is at peace. <sighs> She's at peace. Now, what's she sitting on? Can you see in the picture? Can you see? Shields, weapons, swords, whatever. So if you, if you could see this, you would see like all of these like weapons underneath her. Well, what are these? These are her conquered foes, her enemies that have been vanquished. She is at peace, resting on a mound of weapons. Now, what is the message in this? If you were going to visit the altar of peace to talk about the peace of Rome, the message is this. Wow, peace, prosperity, security, abundance, stability, right? All of that comes through our military might and our ability to control and to dominate and to, and to basically crush everybody who opposes us. That is what the Pax Romana was all about. Uh, one author said it this way, Romans regarded peace not as the absence of war, but as the rare situation when it existed that all of their opponents had been beaten down beyond their ab ability to resist. So Roman military, led by a centurion, you know, in the legion of best trained soldiers in the world, they march into a territory very much like Galilee, and um, they would, you know, poof, marching in, and they would say, is Caesar Lord? And you had to answer. And if you say, yes, Caesar is Lord, well, good, we have peace. You're going you're gonna to obey Caesar. And if you say Caesar is not Lord, we're still going to have peace because they're going to take your life. Right? They're going to take your life either through a sword or by nailing you to a cross. This is, this is a piece of Rome. And this is the situation that Jesus lived in and that Jewish people in his day lived in. The Roman military was not a welcome sight. A Roman centurion was not a welcome presence. Um, it was peace, but it was peace at the edge of a sword or peace through a cross. Now, so is this Roman centurion, when you meet him, Jesus walks into Capernaum, and there's this Roman centurion who comes up to Jesus. Is this Roman centurion a good guy or a bad guy? What do you think? If you are living in that moment, in that day, knowing all that we just talked about, what is he? He's a bad guy, right? He's absolutely a bad guy. He's like, what is he doing here? We don't want him close to us at all. He's part of this oppressive system. Do you have anybody in your world like that that you look at and you just automatically, bad guy, right? Maybe, maybe they live in other parts of the world than we do, or maybe they look differently than we do, and you're just like, mm, bad, bad guy. 
So what happens? So this Roman centurion comes up to Jesus and he, um, he asks for help. He asks for help. Uh, th- like this idea of asking for help isn't like, hey, Jesus, buddy, can you do me a favor? The idea here is like he's desperate. It- it's, um, the word asking is actually translated begging or pleading numerous times. So he's like desperate for the help of Jesus. So here you have a Roman centurion probably still in his military regalia, and he might have other soldiers around him, and he comes and he's begging this Jewish rabbi, miracle worker, for help. I mean, you, hear, you see the power dynamic here. This is, this is crazy. He makes a request. The Roman centurion doesn't demand Jesus to help him. He doesn't say, I'm a centurion. You must help me. He begs. He puts himself in a place of need. And here's what he says. Now, catch this. This is so powerful. He says this. Next slide. Lord, he said. Now, hang on a second. Who's, who's Lord? Caesar is Lord, is the confession that everybody has to make in the Roman Empire. That's what makes the peace of Rome work. And this Roman centurion, who enforces the peace of Rome by saying, is Caesar Lord or not, walks up to Jesus and he says, Lord. Now, the word Lord can mean sir, it can mean like just a term of respect, or it can mean master, one that I serve. Which one does he mean? Who knows? So he says, Lord, addressing Jesus. Um, and, and then he, he unpacks why. Like, what is it that's motivating him to beg, to plead Jesus um, for, for a favor? And he says this, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. So he's not coming to Jesus on his own behalf. He's not coming with his own wounds, his own needs. He's coming on behalf of someone else, someone he cares about. Now, you think, well, like, wow, it's his servant, it's his slave. Is this just like, a, is his servant just a piece of property that he's like, wow, if my servant dies, I'm going to be out, like a big investment? Is that what's happening here? I mean, that, that could be the case. But in those 20 years where Roman soldiers were serving the military, they could not have families of their own. And so oftentimes their servants became family, like became like someone they loved and cared about and they were in their own household. And it seems like that's what's going on here. Like this Roman centurion is begging and pleading with Jesus, like my servant is at home paralyzed, suffering. And the word suffering is like tortured, like they're suffering terribly and I, and I can't bear it. And that's like all he gets out. That's like he, he, he doesn't even make a formal request. He just says, here's the situation. And then Jesus responds to this Roman outsider bad guy, and he says this, shall I come and heal him? That's what Jesus says. Like, okay, shall shall I just come and heal him? That, That apparently Jesus was willing to go to this Gentile Roman soldier's house, which, by the way, we talked about this last week, would have made Jesus unclean. You couldn't go, a good Jew could not go into a Roman, like, Gentile's house without becoming unclean, unholy, and having to go through purification rites. Jesus apparently wasn't worried about that. Remember how we talked about last week how Jesus' holiness, his cleanness goes the other direction? He's not worried about being contaminated. It's like his purity makes everybody else around him pure. So he's, like, willing to go to this Roman centurion's house and to heal um, his servant. The Roman centurion replies, and again, he calls Jesus Lord. He says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, 
and my servant will be healed. I mean, do you, do you hear this? This is so powerful. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Um, he, he, like, he, just, he comes to Jesus, and he acknowledges that, Jesus, you have the authority to heal not just by your touch, not just by being close to people or people touching you, but you have the authority to just say the word and it will be done. Like Jesus, <clears throat> um, how did this Roman centurion understand this about Jesus? Like how did he come to, to see this and have that kind of faith in Jesus that he believes that he could just, wow, from a distance, however great that distance was, speak the word and it would be so. Um, uses the word authority in, the, in this text. I think that's an important word um, to, to think about. Like, what does it mean for Jesus to have authority? And what does this man mean? Now, notice what he doesn't say. The man does not say, uh, okay, Jesus, I am a man with authority, and I believe you have authority. Like, this is really important to catch this. He doesn't say that. As a Roman centurion, I have authority. I'm a man with authority. What does he say? I am a man under authority. What, do, what difference does that make? Who gives the Roman centurion his authority? So he's a Roman soldier, given a task. He's got soldiers under him, but his, he is a part of a chain of command. That's the, the phrase that's used, a chain of command. And where does that chain of command end? Caesar, yes, Caesar, sitting on his throne in Rome. So the centurion is like, I'm a part of this chain of command, and I have people who are above me, and it goes all the way up to Caesar, who makes the commands, sitting on the throne of Rome, right there in that place of authority. But then I have soldiers under me, and I have say-so over them. I don't even have to be there. I can just say the word, and it is so. All right, I... I I tell this one, go, and they go, and that one, come, and, and he comes, and, and like, I have authority, say so, because I am under authority. And Jesus, I believe that you are someone who is under authority as well. What's he recognizing about Jesus? Like, Jesus is kind of a part, he, this is his view, is like, Jesus, you're a part of this chain of command, and you are operating under the authority of Yahweh, of God Almighty. That's what he recognizes about Jesus. And even though there are others who haven't, like even Jesus' own followers haven't recognized this yet. And here's this Roman centurion who says this, like, Jesus, you have this command, this, this authority that comes from God himself, and I believe you have say-so. That, that you have authority over, like, all of these things that cause wounds and pain and damage and brokenness in the world. Now, I believe you can just speak the word, and it will be so. This is, this is an incredible affirmation for this Roman bad guy, centurion, outsider, Gentile to make. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus is amazed at this. I mean, he's amazed at it. That's what the text says. It says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel, like my own people, the, my own like covenant 
community who can trace their, their roots all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Old Testament story, and they know the Old Testament by heart, and like all of that stuff, I've not found anybody that has this kind of faith in Israel. I mean, what is it that amazes Jesus? It's this, this faith, right? This is a simple trust that he has authority, that he has say-so. Um, man, there, there are two times in, in the Gospels where this word is amazed, is a used, is Jesus. And one of them is here. Uh, yeah, you can stay on that slide. There you go. What amazes Jesus? One time it is the great faith of the Roman centurion. And the other time you can read about it when Jesus is in his, uh, in his hometown in Mark 6.6. 6, it says everybody rejects him. They don't believe him. They don't believe he is who he says he is or he can do what he says he will do. And it says, uh, Mark 6, 6 actually says this. He said he could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. Don't you love that? He couldn't do many miracles except, well, just a few, like laying hands on people. Um, I think that's kind of funny. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Two times in the Gospels, Jesus is amazed about faith. And one time it is by a Roman centurion who has such great faith, Jesus has not seen anything like it. And the other time is like the insiders, his own people in his own community who have such little faith that he's amazed by it. Now, like, if you want to know what amazes Jesus, wow, it's this exercise of, of faith that this Roman centurion has. And it's crazy because those who should have faith don't. And those who don't, shouldn't have faith do. Do you see the reversal in this? Like the outsiders are actually kind of in. And the insiders, who think they're insiders, are actually out. That there's this reversal that happens. And we see it happening here in this story. And Jesus tells all kinds of stories like this. He's like, um, in Luke 15, he says, there was a man that had two sons. You probably know the story. We know it as the prodigal son. But... Um, you know, there's a man who had two sons, and there was a younger son who was, you know, he was, I'm going to paraphrase, he was kind of a schmuck. He uh, asked his father, he basically said to his dad, hey, I wish, I wish you were dead. Could I just get my money now? Like, yeah, you're sitting on a gold mine, uh, so if I could just get my inheritance now, and I'll just, you'll be dead to me, I'll be dead to you, I'll go my own way. The father, like, gives, splits his his inheritance up, his estate up, gives it to the younger son, and he goes off, and he just, like, squanders it, right? Wild living. I mean, who knows what all that means? And the, the elder son, he stays home the whole time, and he's like, he is good. He's the model son. He's, like, right there, and he's working hard. And he's taking care of everything, managing everything. And that younger son finally gets to the end of his rope, and he... Um, like, he, he's living in a Gentile territory, he's feeding pigs, and he's, he's miserable, he's been on this path of self-destruction, and he comes to the end of his rope, he's starving to death, he's ready to eat the food from the pigs, and he comes to his senses, and he's like, I'm just going to go home to my dad, and I'm going to beg for his mercy, and I'm not going to ask him to take me back as a son, because I told him he's dead to me, I'm just going to ask him to hire me on so I can be a servant in his household. And, and you know the story, right? The, the, the son is like, he, he starts making his way back, and the father sees him while he's still a long way off. And what does the father do? The father runs to his son and embraces him and puts a ring on his finger and, and shoes on his feet and like cleans him all up. And then he calls the neighbors, and he's like, let's have a party because my son that was lost, who was dead to me, is now alive, and he's back home, and let's celebrate. And everybody's having a great time that this outsider has come in. 
except one person who's not having a good time. The elder brother, right? Because he was so good. Like, he, he deserved the party. But it's this outsider, this schmuck, who's getting the party. Who's, this outsider is actually in and who's sitting at the banquet table, just dependent on the grace of the Father, what the Father has done for him, not in his own merit. He just came in as a, as a beggar, and the Father put him at a place of honor at the table, and, and there's this banquet going on. And the elder brother, at the end of that story that Jesus tells in Luke 15, where's the elder brother? He's standing outside, away from the party, gnashing his teeth in anger. Insiders are out, and outsiders are in. And there's this, there's this reversal. And you see it happening right here in, in, in this story. Um, and, and Jesus goes on, and he, he says, he, he kind of, he talks about like this reversal that will happen. And he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. Like those outsiders who don't know anything about the covenant that God has made with the people in the Old Testament and all of that. They have no merit to belong, but they will come from the east and the west and they will take their places at this feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It's like the kingdom of heaven is like this massive banquet. Just like this table is set by the grace of God and people are invited to come to it. And all of these outsiders will come and they will take their places, just like this Roman centurion. But the subjects of the kingdom, the ones who were insiders all along, just like those elder brothers, they're going to be thrown outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is this surprising inclusion in the ministry of Jesus that those who don't feel like they belong actually do. And there's also this surprising exclusion that those who feel like, man, I'm, I'm in, they're actually on the way out. And do you know why they're out? Why these insiders actually find their way out? It's because they can't bring themselves to sit at the table with those outsiders, right? The elder brother, he can't bring himself to sit at the table with that schmuck of a younger brother. And he's angry at the father for inviting him to the table. I mean, there's a story in the Old Testament that Isaiah is like 600 years before Jesus. And this is how Isaiah sees it. He says like the end of the age, the end of history, it's going to be a banquet, which that's good news, isn't it? It's a banquet. And here, here, Isaiah 25, this is such a beautiful passage. On that mountain, the Lord Almighty, he will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples. How many peoples? All peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best meats, the finest of wines. And on that mountain, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers how many nations? All nations, Right? He will destroy that sheet, and what is that sheet? He will swallow up death forever. Like, this is what God is going to do. He's going to, like, get rid of death and pain and mourning. He will swallow it up forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. It's like this picture of a, of a, of, of a feast for kings, like the greatest food you can imagine. And God is setting the table, and, and everybody is invited to this banquet. Like that is how Isaiah envisions it. And Jesus says, but here's the reality that this banquet table is set and everybody is invited, but those who feel like the banquet table belongs to them, they're actually, they, they, they can't bring themselves to sit at the banquet table with all of those dirty, unclean people who, who they don't feel like they 
Like, those people deserve to belong. And then this text, back to, back to Matthew 8, it ends. It says, so Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done for you just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very moment. So I think this story, it, it, like, it, it, it brings up so much stuff that I think is to just kind of summarize and touch on for a second. It's like there's a danger as people of faith. People um, of faith who have maybe like grown up in, in the church, it's, it's such an amazing gift, right, to, to grow up like in a spiritual community, to grow up in a, in a family where, you know, our, our parents nurtured us in faith. Like that's such a wonderful gift. And I want that for everyone. I want that for my kids and my grandkids and all of that. But there's always a danger that deserve to be here by my own merit, right? I've been good. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. I try to be really good, and, and um, you know, I fail sometimes, but, like, there's always a danger that says, I deserve to be here on my own merit. And here's the thing. The banquet table in the kingdom of God like, are at this table because of Jesus, not because of us, because he has extended the invitation to us. That he is the one who sets the table. He is the one who invites everyone to come and to, to recognize him as Lord, that he is Lord, and to sit at his table. And that we're all, we're all outsiders who have been invited in. And, and I think this is, this is what this Roman centurion shows us. This is the, the gift of this, is, is to remember uh, to remember that we were outsiders and we were just called in by the grace, by the grace of Jesus. Um, secondly, there's this idea of authority, that Jesus has uh, this authority that this Roman centurion recognizes. And Jesus' authority is very different from Roman authority or authority as we think about it in the world. Jesus uses his authority to do what? To serve, to love, to heal. Not to do harm, but to heal. I mean, this is how Jesus uses his authority. Um, and then Jesus says this crazy thing in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus came to his disciples, just like us, and he said this. We call this the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is speaking this to us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of, of who? All nations, not worthy people, not the right kind of people, not the people who look the same way, not the people who speak the same language, not the people who, who you feel like are insiders, but go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I am with you always until the very end of the age, until we all sit together at that banquet table in the kingdom of heaven and have a feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What is your motivation for being a disciple of Jesus. It is that. It, it should be. And our motivation for mission and for serving and for, um, for, for caring about the world is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him to recognize what the Roman soldier recognized, that Jesus is the very presence of God. And because he has all authority, um, we, as his followers, have been authorized to like be his ambassadors in the world today. Did you know that? It's like you are in the chain of command of the kingdom of God. That when you surrender your life to Jesus, it's like you get a badge. 
you should have, we should have badges, right? That would be cool. It's like a police officer pulls you over, and that police officer doesn't have authority. That police officer is under authority. And the badge that they have, it represents that picture of like they're in a chain of command. And so what they do is authorized by the government that, that hires them. And it's like you and I, we have authority in the kingdom of God that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now I'm giving it to you. Go make disciples of everybody and invite them in. Share the healing presence of Jesus with the people around you. Don't pay attention to, to who you think deserves it because nobody deserves it. Just tell the good news. Announce and demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God. And many people are going to come from the east and the west. And all nations are going to come. And do you know who those people are who are going to come from the east and the west? Do you know who they are? They're me. And they're you. Because there is no one who is further outside of the people who originally heard this than me, living in Wayne County, Holmes County, Tuscarawas County, Stark County, Ohio, whatever, right? They could not have imagined these Gentiles sitting together in Dover, Ohio, 2,000 years later, worshiping the risen Jesus. Like, we are the many who have come from the east and the west. You're an outsider. I'm an outsider. And we have been brought in by the grace of of Jesus, and we have been authorized and commissioned to go and invite other outsiders to come in and to take their place alongside of us at Jesus's kingdom table. The banquet of God isn't just an all-you-can-eat banquet. I think it is that, but it is an all-y'all-can-eat banquet. Who's invited? All y'all. I wish I was Southern sometime. Um, and so, like, as followers of Jesus, we... I want you to, to recognize this, that you, have a, you are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. The place you work, you're an ambassador of the kingdom of God. You might be an employee of that business, but you represent the values of the kingdom of God, the way you see people, the way you treat people, the way you love people, that Jesus has authorized you to be an ambassador of his kingdom in that place. Do you believe that? In your neighborhood, the people who are around you, in, the, in your school. Nobody wants to talk about school right now. We're in summer. But, like, you are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. What would happen if everybody in this room woke up every morning saying, I represent the kingdom of God today? That Jesus has authorized me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he's called me to be his ambassador in this world to speak and to live the kingdom values and I believe that God is going to use me in the places I live, the places I work, the places I play, the people I'm around. And that, God, would you bring your kingdom through me, through my presence here on earth as it is in heaven. God, we thank you that you have called us into your kingdom, that you have called us to your banquet table, that you have set this table of, of grace and abundance for us. And we don't deserve to be at it. Just like that Roman centurion, we're outsiders who have no merit at all. And yet, Jesus, you've invited us. And our only, our only credentials are that we are people who you found and who you compelled to come in and who you invited by your grace and who you saved. And you loved us with an unfailing love and you gave your life for us. And so, Jesus, we gladly accept your invitation. And as we come and as we experience your banquet that you set for us, as we experience life with you and and, and the, the goodness of your, your grace on our lives, help us to extend that invitation to others 
Send us out, commission us as ambassadors of your kingdom to the places we live, work, and play. God, may your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth in our lives, just as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name.